Please take your Bible and turn with me to the book of 1 Chronicles, the 12th chapter. And today we're going to be reading one verse which will serve as the basis for the morning message with associated verses from the Bible. And if you're following the map journal, you've just read this passage of Scripture and you've made your way through the first nine or so chapters of First Chronicles and said, thank you, Lord, I'm through with that. Because it's all that genealogical stuff, as we call it. But there's a lot of truth embedded in all the Word of God. So we need to be careful that we don't allow ourselves to be lulled to sleep when we read any part of the Bible, lest we miss a message the Lord has for us. First Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32 says, of the sons of Issachar, men who understood the times with knowledge of what Israel should do, the chiefs were 200 and all their kinsmen were at their command. Thomas Edison, Albert Einstein, Nikola Tesla, men of great stature in the history of modern science and quite frankly throughout the history of science. Great men. They had a friend, lesser known. He was not a wannabe great scientist. He himself was a great scientist. His name was Charles Steinmetz. He was born with dwarfism. He had a hunchback. He never achieved higher than four feet in height. But he was called the little giant among the scientific community. He was also called the wizard of Schenectady. He lived in the early to middle of the 20th century, and he was largely responsible for the development of alternating current. He was a giant in his own right. He was called upon by Henry Ford in the early 1920s to come to one of Ford's factories to resolve a problem that none of the engineers employed by the Ford company could figure out. This company had received a wonderful generator, but it went back down and no one could fix it. So he resorted to call upon Charlie Steinmetz. Steinmetz accepted the invitation. He made his way to River Rouge Plant, one of the state-of-the-art plants in the Ford Corporation. He got there, and when he walked in, he was asked, Dr. Steinmetz, what may we make available to you for you to fix our problem? He said, I need three things. I need a stepladder, I need a measuring tape, and a piece of chalk. They got it for him. For two days, he pondered the problem. He listened. He worked. He thought. He computed in his mind mostly possibilities. And then one day, it came to him. He said, put the ladder here. The... Helpers put the ladder in the area where he suggested. He climbed and he took the chalk and marked on the generator, descended from the ladder, turned to the men and said, Now go up and remove the panel that covers that area. Take 16 windings from the electrical coil field and then the problem will be solved. They did somewhat skeptically. They did, but they did. When they got there, they did as they were told, and the result was as it was predicted to be. The factory was up and running again, and we know 
In that day, time was money just like it is today, and Mr. Ford was very happy until he received the invoice for the work. It was a $10,000 charge for two days of work. Now, that may not sound like something exorbitant to us in the 21st century, but that would be roughly equivalent to $200,000 in buying power and money today. That's a large charge, isn't it? So he paid it. It hurt him to write the check, but he paid it. And on the invoice, he said, why did you charge me so much for so little time investment? Mr. Steinmetz, when he got it, he cashed the check and wrote on the invoice, sending it back to Henry Ford. And this is what he wrote. One dollar for the chalk mark. $9,990 for knowing where to make the chalk mark. <laughs> Steinmetz had insight that no one else had. And the sons of Issachar, you may not know who Issachar was. Issachar was one of the sons of Jacob. He was the head of one of the tribes of Israel. We don't know much about him. This is probably the one verse in the entire Old Testament that gives us more insight into his descendants, at least. And there was a part of him in them because they were all descended from him, being his grandsons and great-grandsons and so forth. And they were called by King David when he assumed the monarchy of Israel at the death of Saul to the city of Hebron. And there he, his sons rather, came and served the great king. Let's look at this verse of Scripture. These men are described rather unusually of the sons of Issachar, men who understood the times. Let's pause just a moment and consider the word understood. Some of your translations say, who had insight into the times. And from my point of view, that really captures the idea best. Insight into their times. This word is used by Solomon in the fourth chapter of the Proverbs. He says, get wisdom, get insight, do not forget, and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. And then... Three verses later, in the seventh verse, he says, Whatever you get, get insight. Insight was and is today at a premium. Insight is something which was available to the sons of Issachar when it was unavailable to others, evidently, for this very reason. Because look again at our text. Of the sons of Issachar, men who understood the times with knowledge of what Israel should do. The word translated knowledge is that typical Old Testament word, which is the word which suggests not just intellectual knowledge, it's knowledge that is revelational in nature. In other words, it's knowledge that could never be learned from a textbook. It could only be learned from the Spirit of God, from the book, the Word of God. And this is something that is within our grasp, quite frankly, today. If you know Jesus, the Bible says, He who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not have the Spirit. If you do not have the Spirit of Jesus, if the Holy Spirit does not live in you, you don't know Him. That's rather harsh, but it's true. And with the presence of the Holy Spirit, remember what Jesus said to the apostles 
on the night before His death. He says, I will ask the Father and He will give you another Helper that He may be with you forever. The Spirit of truth. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance everything which I have said to you. Aren't you glad Jesus asked the Father to give the apostles the Holy Spirit? And they recorded what they remembered. It's called the apostles' teaching. When we look at the Pentecostal church in Acts chapter 2, this fledgling church, they devoted themselves right out of the box to the apostles' teaching. And we today who know Jesus, we have the same Spirit who lived in them. Can you imagine it? The apostle Peter, James, John, the great deacon Stephen, Philip the evangelist deacon, the same Spirit lives in us. Oh, Holy Spirit, thank You. It's so humbling to think about that, that He would want to live in us, but He does. We are not our own. We've been bought with a price. We have become the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit of God. And it's His responsibility and His joy, I might add, to teach us all things. And He uses the Word of God to do that. We can come before the Holy Spirit inspired, God-breathed Word of God, and God speaks to us today from His Word. When we open it as individuals, He speaks to us. If we come with the right heart, a heart to be taught, a heart that's hungry for the truth, not simply so we can hoard the truth, but we can have the truth and we can share it because we know what God has done through us in the Word, which is the truth, where Jesus says, If you abide in My Word, then you are truly disciples of Mine. You shall know the truth. The truth shall set you free. We have that same truth indwelling us in the person of the Spirit of truth. The author of truth, Jesus Christ, lives in us. He embodies truth. He wants to live in us. And He wants to share that freeing truth with other people. Can you imagine? Bud, this football player who saw an interest in Tommy Silverthorne. His heart went out to him. Was it because Bud was inherently a good man? No. It was because the Holy Spirit of God lived in him. Aren't you glad he came and touched Tom Silverthorne? And that's exactly what God wants to do through us. He teaches us in John 15, 26, another aspect of the work of the Holy Spirit is He bears witness to Christ. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you shall be My witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the remotest part of the earth. That's for us. So we can be people who understand and have insight. And have that insight because of the knowledge that comes to us through our Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Let's turn our attention now to look at two simple statements that grow out of this verse about people of insight. The first of which is this. People of insight understand their times. Let's take one more glance at verse 32. Of the sons of Issachar, men who understood the times, they had insight into their times. What are the current prevailing views on religious authority and ethics 
in our day. The prevailing philosophy of today is what has been labeled as postmodernism. That means we have passed out of an era that is very naturalistic and objective. We are told over and over again in not so many words that there's no possibility of our finding objective truth. Truth is a moving target. Truth depends upon what's true for you, and I have my truth and you have your truth. The absurdity of that is obvious. Truth is truth. And we know Jesus is the embodiment of truth. The Word of God is truth. The Word of God has withstood assault from the Garden of Eden to this point. It looks like we've been down on the mat for the count. But the Word of God is not chained. I love that. Don't you love that verse in the book of 2 Timothy? Paul was saying, I'm in chains, but the Word of God is not in change. Changes. Change, rather. Third time's a charm. And so, and so we are people who have a word that's true, for sure. Postmoderns believe that you can't have objective truth. They pretty well reject anything that's objective. They don't like things that are cold and sterile like truth. They don't understand the real idea of truth, of course. And when we think about the birth of postmodernism, it just didn't happen in the last 40 or 50 years, by the way. Soren Kierkegaard, who was a Danish theologian, philosopher, was the one who was really leading the charge initially with this thing of existentialism, which puts an emphasis on experience. It puts an emphasis on the moment you live in the moment. Now, Jesus, in a sense, teaches that same thing, doesn't he, in the Sermon on the Mount? Do not be anxious for tomorrow. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Live today, independence upon me, moment by moment. That's the way we were designed to live, for sure. There's an element of truth in that. But then go forward. The exponents of this man, Kierkegaard, who... I believe, reading his material, was a believer in Christ. Some might disagree with that. But there were people who came out of his teaching, like Albert Camus and Jean-Paul Sartre, these French philosophers, brilliant men, academically. I believe it was Sartre, who at the age of 44 was the second youngest winner of the Nobel Prize in Literature, died two years later in a head-on car crash. But nevertheless, they were atheists and they just took it to a new level. Postmoderns are people who are pragmatists. If it works, they want it. And you notice that the focus of their thinking is on them. If it works for me, give me something which works. And we live in a time of postmodernity. We are bombarded with it. Media outlets are full of the lies of postmodernism. And our culture is saturated by this. Now, what are we to do about this? If we understand the times, how are we to respond to postmodern thinking? It seems to be an all-out assault on the gospel. And I would agree with those who would say that. 
But here's what we need to understand. We must seek to avoid developing a fortress mentality where we hunker down and we gather together. And it's important that we have fellowship with each other. We come to a place like this and worship. But we need to learn how to engage the culture. Engage apologetics, which is led by a member of our church, Caleb Harrison, a dear brother in Christ, and his goal is to help us know how to engage. The Lord wants us to know how to engage. John Stott, the great Anglican theologian, pastor, in one of his books, Our Guilty Silence, talking about evangelizing, he said that we, and he was talking about his day, which is 40, 50 years ago, and he's talking probably about England more than he would be talking about America, but it was true in America too. He said, we have adopted a rabbit hole Christianity. What he meant by that, and you probably know this, that rabbits live in warrens, they're called. They're underground. They're a place of great safety. And when the rabbit wants to come out of the hole to do whatever he believes he needs to do or she needs to do, the head pops up, looks around, surveys the landscape, and if the coast is clear, the rabbit goes its way and finds its destination. Then when that mission is completed on that end, the rabbit very carefully, warily makes its way back and goes under. He said, that's the way Christians are. John Stott lived when he wrote that in an England that America is like today. Have you been to Europe lately? It's one of the most depressing places in the world. It's because of the encroaching postmodernism, existential kind of thinking and a debunking of the Bible as being the Word of God. And speaking of the church as being irrelevant. Let me say this. The Bible has never been and never will be irrelevant. Sometimes we who make up the church can be irre- irrelevant because we fail to engage the culture. What did Jesus call us? And to this day, what does He still think we are as His followers? In the Sermon on the Mount, He said, You are the salt of the earth. If the salt has become tasteless, it no longer has any value except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. So what that suggests is we are to be a preservative influence in the culture. It will rot if we abandon the culture, if we walk away from the culture, if we huddle up in our holy circles out of fear. We're not to be afraid. If God is for us, we sing, thank you, Becky. If God is for us, who can be against us? Romans 8. The answer is clear. Nobody can be against us. And we're not to develop sort of a pugilistic approach where we just take the gloves off and we're going to fight you. It's a different... Our fight, we have fought the good fight, hopefully. We will fight the good fight. That was Paul's closing words. But his was not a fist fight. It was a faith fight. He walked by faith and not by sight. We need to see things not as we see them on the surface. We need to see them as God sees them. We need to see God. God needs to be our focus, not the culture. But we need not ignore the culture. Because if we do neglect our primary duty, and what might that be? To be salt, but also light. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. A light 
set on a hill is unmistakable. We are to be light. Jesus is the light. He indwells us. We are to be reflecting His light. And people will see us. When you go to work tomorrow, if you're working, when you go to work, you're not going primarily as an owner of the business where you go or as an employee or an employer of other kinds of workers. You go as Jesus' emissary. We are ambassadors for Christ. You go and you shine in that place. You should be the best employee your boss or the owner of your business has. You're to be the best neighbor. I was talking to one of our 90-year-old members after the worship service this morning at 9 o'clock. He said he heard yesterday on TV that only 31% of Americans know who their next-door neighbors are. That is a shame for us who are Christians. We should know them. We should engage them. We should love them. We should let the light of Christ shine through them, through us to them rather, and see what God does. See what changes might occur in the culture. Well, let's look at three areas. And this information which I'm about to share with you comes from a book entitled America at the Crossroads written by George Barna. For the last three decades plus, Dr. Barna has led an excellent ministry to analyze the cultural trends, especially as they relate to things spiritual and moral in America. This book was published three years or four years ago, 2015. And let me share some of the things he shares in the book about the Bible and the way people look at the Bible. 91% of American households had a Bible in them. Many of them, multiple Bibles. 91%. That's a lot of the Word of God, isn't it? And there is a glimmer of hope in that. But his research discovered that in the year 2010, only 47% of American adults read the Bible at least once a week other than when they came to a place of worship like this. That's a pretty impressive statistic. Fast forward five years, from 2010 to 2015, that percentage had dropped from 47% to 33%. That is a huge reduction. What happened? Well, what happened in part could be that pastors like myself didn't really teach the Bible. They taught other things that were more popular. They went to current events or they went to things that they knew would tickle the ears of people in terms of just sort of massaging their souls instead of really challenging their minds and their spirits. That's happened. We see a lot of that, hear a lot of this on TV. We know that. So that's part of the problem, but it's also the result of the erosion that has occurred in the confidence that people have in the Bible because of what they hear and read. Look, do yourself a favor and start turning off social media. Turn off a lot of the media and go to the Word of God. You're not going to be emboldened and encouraged by listening to what's on the media. You're going to be encouraged by what is taught in the Word of God. And God will empower you by His Word to accomplish the mission He's given you to be salt and light. 
Listen to a couple of things that Barna learned in his research. Spiritual indicators, he says, about the Bible. Two things. In 2005, people responded to this statement, the Bible is totally accurate in all of the principles it teaches. 2005, 45% of American adults said yes. Five years later, only five years later, only 36% said yes to that statement. Here's the second statement. The Bible is neither the actual nor inspired Word of God. It is written by men. 2005, 22% said yes, that's true. It's really not any different than any other book. 2015, 30%. An increase there also that's considerably alarming when we think about it. Well, we know the Bible, as I've said, is unchanging. God doesn't change, nor does His Word change. What about the church, the institutional church? Listen to these statistics from this same book. 46% of adults are unchurched, an increase from the 35% in 2005. So, an 11% decrease in people who are unchurched. That's amazing. Almost half the people five, four years ago, it may be over the 50% mark by now, for all we know. But 46%, that's alarming, who are unchurched. The total number of unchurched Americans rose from 112 million in 2005 to 151 million in 2015. That's 39 million people became unchurched in that decade. Now, there's a little hope here in these next two. You might not see it. 62% of the unchurched consider themselves to be Christian. We know that's not a good number. I won't go into reasons why next week I'm hopefully going to talk about why that's not a valid number. But there's hope that they don't balk at the idea of identifying themselves as Christians. They're largely misinformed, but at least they haven't closed the door on being thought of as Christians. Here's the other thing that's also encouraging to a degree. 65% of the unchurched define themselves as spiritual people. Well, spirituality has a lot of different understandings in the culture. But nevertheless, people are spiritual. And we are spiritual. If we know Jesus, we are spiritual, aren't we? By all means, we are spiritual people. Here's something that is reported by the Barna Group regarding morality or ethics. I'm just going to read some statements that were asked of people, and the people were asked, do you feel like these activities are morally acceptable? In 2003, cohabitation, living with someone of the opposite sex without being married to them. 60% of American adults said, yes, that's okay. 2013, 63%. Not a huge increase, but a sizable increase in a decade. Enjoying sexual thoughts or fantasies about someone... 2003, 59% said, that's okay. 63% of American adults in 2013 said, that's okay. Having a sexual relationship with someone of the opposite sex to whom you're not married, 42%, 2003, that's okay. This is a little bigger increase by 2013. 
53%. Well, there are many other kinds of things having to do with morality. We know there are morality issues beyond our sexuality, but those are illustrative of the current prevailing views on ethics in our day. People of insight understand their times. Now, let's go to the second statement, which comes from 1 Chronicles 12, verse 32. Look at it one more time. Of the sons of Issachar, men who understood the times with knowledge of what Israel should do. Do you understand that when we get insight from the Word of God by the Holy Spirit, it's not just to hoard and to think about. It's designed to motivate us to behave in a way that is pleasing to God. Time will not allow us to go into great detail about what all that means, but we're going to look at two commandments of Jesus that I think all the other commandments of Jesus come from. The first is what is known as the great commandment. A young man comes to Jesus. I think he was sincere. He said, Master, what is the greatest commandment? God says, you shall love, uh, Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind. And then for good measure, he threw in another one. You shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. How do we love God? Don't mistake love for God with a sentimental, warm, fuzzy kind of feeling. We do have moments, I do regularly, where I sense the presence of God and there's a feeling attached to it. Feelings of affection, feelings of conviction of sin when I'm convicted of my sin. So we know there are feelings. We are emotional beings. God has emotions. Read about it. He cries. He has grief. This is God. I'm talking about God the Father. This is what the Bible says. But we are to be people who understand that loving God is an act of the will. That's what it really is. When Jesus speaks about how we can know that we love Him, He says, if you love Me, you will keep My commandments. That's awesome. But it's kind of scary, too. Because how can I know all the commandments of the Lord? There's so many of them. How can I know all the things which Jesus said? And the answer is rather simple. Read the Gospels. And what you'll discover is, I'll challenge you, I dare you to do this. I don't imagine too many people will do it. It's not because I know your nature, I know mine. I believe that. They're in there. Well, read it and take a pen and a pencil and write them down. What you'll discover is there are what will be a surprisingly small number of commandments that will tell you if you really love the Lord because you want to do them. That doesn't mean that you're just going to jump out of bed in the morning and say, hey, Lord, show me a commandment I'm not keeping. I want to keep it. You may have that response, but it's not about feeling. It's about your will. It's an act of the will. You have to trust the Lord to stimulate you to do that. Jesus says in Luke 6, 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Now, quite frankly, I, every time I think of that, and I think about it intentionally, regularly, it, it kind of 
it, I don't like to think about it because lots of times I don't do what he says. But I, if I love him, I'm going to bring myself under that question and ask the Lord, show me, Lord. Search me and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me. And it's not just about having sex out of marriage or fantasizing about sex. It's about attitudes I have that are godly, godless rather, attitudes. Attitudes of resentment and superiority in my spirit. All those kind of things. It covers a whole wide range of attitudes and actions. So if we love Him, what will we do? We will keep His commandments. It's a promise. It's a way to determine, are we really Christians? Jesus says, He who has my commandments and keeps them, He it is who loves me. And I will love Him and will disclose myself to Him. Now listen, the word disclose means I will reveal myself to Him. This is where the knowledge of God comes. The revelation of God to us comes when we come before the Lord in the Word of God, and we expose ourselves. May I tell you a little something? I don't know. I think D.L. Moody said this. It just came to my mind, so I'm going to share it with you. He said about the Bible, either this book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. If I find myself distancing myself from reading the Bible, I know why. It's because I don't want to be confronted with my sin. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I want to go to the Word of God so I can be a woman or a man of insight. I want to have insight so that I can understand what's going on in the culture and I can be a tool in God's hands to be salt and light, and I can help be part of the solution instead of the problem. And God can use me, as we're going to say, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, in that same setting, when the question is recorded by Luke, Jesus gave the parable of the Good Samaritan. And you know that story. I don't need to go into it. Read it if you want to read it in detail. In the last part, beginning with about the 30th verse, of Luke chapter 10. It's a great story. It tells us how to love people who are not like us. In fact, people whom we would consider our enemies. People who we would consider non-persons, basically. Because that was a viewpoint Jews had of Samaritans. But here's the other thing. This is really important. The Great Commission. Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things which I have commanded you. Lo, I will be with you even to the end of the age. A companion verse, this is my life verse really, has been for probably 40 years now. Colossians 1.28, We proclaim Him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete or mature in Christ. Let me pick that apart a little bit. Who is our message? What is our message? Jesus is our message. Period. Jesus is our message. If you read what comes right before that, beginning with the 13th verse of Colossians, we learn that Jesus has rescued us from the domain of darkness. He has 
redeemed us and we are forgiven of our sins. He is the ruler of the universe and the ruler of the kingdom of God. And He has reconciled us from a place of estrangement by our sin to the Father. Jesus is a great message. We proclaim Jesus. And the second thing is, the method is to proclaim Him. We've got to tell people. We can't by just being nice to people win them to Christ. We have to reflect the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But we have to share Jesus. The Gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. The kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. The preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The power is in the message. It's not in us. It's the Gospel. Now, what can we proclaim? Well, I can proclaim me as a pastor, a preacher. And there are subtle ways that my flesh causes me to want to do that. Get people to think I'm something. When I'm nothing. That's what the Bible says. Paul says that about himself. He says that about Peter. He says that about Apollos. We are nothing. God is everything. We can proclaim our church. God forbid, stop at church. Don't proclaim this church if you have a, an inclination to do that. This is the body of Christ. We proclaim Jesus. He is our message. And what a powerful message He is. That's all we want to proclaim. Not another human being. Not a church. Not a ministry within the church. Not the children's ministry. Not the youth ministry. Not the music ministry. Not celebrate recovery. I mean, we've got a lot of ministries and I'm not knocking those ministries. But we proclaim Jesus Christ. Here's the third thing. The mission is to bring those we teach to maturity. Did you notice what Paul writes? We proclaim Him admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man mature in Christ. What word recurs? Every, every, every. We should not rest in this disciple-making process. And to make a disciple is to help someone. And it's the only part of that great commission that really is a command. Everything else that is translated like a verb is a modifying verb. We call it a participle or a verbal. It's a half verb, half adverb, half verb. So the idea is make disciples. What is a disciple? We're to turn people into disciples. We have to be a disciple to make a disciple. Some of us need to ask for help. If you need help in learning what it means to be a disciple, please consult Eric Jimenez. Eric, would you stand just a moment? Eric is our leader in discipleship. Nora Karam, our lady leader. Stan, Nora, you guys be available after church today. You come and ask them, how can we get connected to somebody who can help disciple me? We will find someone to do that. But every person... Every person, every person. Here's the means. This is so powerful. The means of the Great Commission's fulfillment is Christ's power. Because in verse 29 of Colossians 1, 
we hear these words. For this purpose I also labor. Look, this is not for the faint of heart. This is hard work because the devil doesn't want it to be done because he knows it hastens the day that he will be thrown into the lake of fire and the key will be thrown away. So we need to understand that this work is done not in our own power. By this I labor. The energy or the power of Christ in me enables me. He's the one who empowers us to this. Now let me finish up. I read a book about 20 years ago, and it was very hard for me to read. It's called Blue Like Jazz by a guy named Donald Miller. I, did, I found myself just sort of forcing myself to read it, but I felt like I needed to read it to understand the times. He's a proposed Christian, and he talked about really what has come to be known as postmodernism and how in order to reach people we've got to understand them. He probably went a little too far in my thinking about we have to become like them. We don't have to become like them. We just have to be like Christ. And Jesus will reach people through us. But at the conclusion of the book, it was worth reading the book for the conclusion. He said in his analysis, I think it was an accurate analysis, he said there are three things that millennials, we would call them today, that word was not even in use at that time, postmoderns, three things that they're interested in. I'm talking about the lost One is community. Secondly, transparency, being real. Thirdly, opportunity to get involved in something that's meaningful. Those three things. And I thought when I read that, thank you, Lord. This is New Testament Christianity. This is nothing new, but it is an indictment on the church at that time and to a degree to this time that we are not providing community where people can relate and get to know each other. The church like this, this is a congregation of people, hopefully not simply an aggregation of people, just a gathering like we'd see at some public place where there are several people who come. But a real community, we have that. Have you noticed how frequently in the New Testament the Bible gives one another commands? Love one another. Serve one another. Pray for one another. Encourage one another. Many, many such commands. That requires community. We have that. This is Christianity. It's not some aberration. It's not something that's an antique. It is real. And we can be real. Speaking of real, there's no place for hypocrisy. That doesn't mean that we have to go around spilling our guts about all of our secret sins and all that. We need to come clean before God with them. But we have to be honest. Look, we can't do it by ourselves. We are vulnerable except for Christ in every area. And then opportunity. When we call people to follow Jesus, what is the end game? The end game is that they will join us in a long train of people who are committed to make disciples of Jesus Christ as we go to make disciples at church, at home, in the community, at work, all over. We're looking for people whom God has earmarked to be disciples of Jesus Christ. Let's not be like Hezekiah. Hezekiah, we read the story. I don't need to repeat it, but 
after Isaiah had challenged him and said, because you did not give glory to God, you took all the credit for all the accumulation of your wealth when you had these dignitaries coming from another country. Because of that, your sons are going to become eunuchs. You know what that word means? Eunuchs in the king of Babylon's court. And what did he say? The word of the Lord you have shared with me is good. And then this is what he thought. At least I will have peace and safety in my time. We who are older, we have many millennials here. We have many kids here who are younger. I don't even know what they're going to call that group. They'll be different a little bit. But it doesn't matter what cultural group one finds oneself in, whether it's modern, postmodern, prehistoric, whatever. Everybody, everybody has the same problem. We have sin. I love that interview, didn't you, with that young man? He said, I don't believe people are born with a sinful nature, and I'm glad they left that last part in. But I think he was sincere. But if I'm wrong, can you tell me? Millennials are seeking. But there are people in our age group. I'm a boomer. There aren't many of us left. We're disintegrating right before our eyes. They're dying like flies. But what we know is it doesn't matter. People without Christ need Christ. And we have Christ in us. We have the power of the Spirit available to us if we know Jesus. And this is why we do Who Is Your One? To give you a little nudge. But if there were no movement, Who Is Your One? It's in the Bible, isn't it? Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, help us to be like You. As a body of believers, we pray that our church will be a church that is reflective of You. That when people come and when we meet together and You bring people who are seeking into our place here, Lord, they'll know that they have been touched by You having been here. And they will want to hunger and thirst for You. And Lord, help us to be alert to those sitting around us. To reach out to them. Not to be afraid. Not to feel like we're intruding. But we reach out in the love of Christ to them. And people in our workplace all over, Lord. Bring a revival in our hearts so that there can be a revival in America. And do that. We know if you're doing it here, Lord, you're doing it all over the world in every nation in every continent. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 God bless you.